the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Near you, go to Mo- the following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
he was saying to all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, must take up his cross, and must follow me. For whoever may will to save his life will lose it, but whoever may lose his life for my sake, this one will save it. For what does it benefit a man after having gained the whole world but having lost or forfeited himself? For whoever may be ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of this one when he will come in his glory and of the Father and of the holy angels. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, must take up his cross, and must follow me. These words, in the tense and in the form they are in the Greek, have a once-for-all meaning. It is once and for all you deny yourself, once and for all you take up the cross, and once and for all you make the decision to follow Jesus. It's called discipleship. It's very clear that Today you will live one more day of your life as a gift from Jesus. How will you use your day? Will you make progress in your journey toward heaven by reaching out and losing your life for the sake of others? Will you lay your life down for others? Part of what happened this morning for me in the prayer closet was I began to think through all of the different things I had wanted to do and accomplish in my life. You know, when a man begins to push past 50, part of the process is that a man begins to review his life. This is a prime time for men who decide they're not getting what they want in life to go crazy and go have an affair or jump out of one job into another because suddenly this man recognizes he's not getting what he wants out of life. And so sin beckons him and he runs and jumps into that sin because the lust of his heart says, I want more. I'm dying. I'm I'm not going to live again. So get out of my way, everybody. I'm going to do what I want to do. And often men become very destructive. There are others of us who back away from that and say, no, I made a decision that I was going to follow Jesus and I was going to follow him all the way to the end. But that doesn't mean we are unconscious of those things that we had hoped to accomplish that we now know we will never accomplish. It's good for a man or a woman to be very conscious of the fact that you have chosen to follow Jesus and to enjoy the presence of Jesus. This world is temporary. It's short. The real deal of Christian discipleship 
is letting go of all of those things that your heart cries out after and giving yourself then entirely to the service of Jesus Christ, loving the poor, loving the downtrodden, ministering to the lost, reaching out for eternity. We have given ourselves to the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will not look back and we will not regret our decision to give ourselves utterly to Jesus Christ. He is awesome. He is wonderful. He does what he says he will do. He is utterly faithful. So today I come praising the name of Jesus, knowing that day by day I'm walking out the life of a disciple. And now I'm crying out for the last part of the ministry. I'm crying out for the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for the power of Pentecost, because the work is so far beyond and greater than I am. We need Jesus. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. We're Ray and Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. And we're happy you've joined us today. We're sharing a story called Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. And Miss Pullinger is a wonderful example of someone who has lost her life for Jesus. For the past 50 years, she's been in Hong Kong ministering to criminals, heroin and opium addicts, prostitutes, gangsters, and she has seen thousands of people come to Jesus and start over new lives, completely freed from their addictions, from their crime, and praise God, those converts have now gone on to the Philippines, to Thailand, to other countries in Asia, and continued the work. Now, she could have stayed in England and enjoyed a wonderful life of classical music, of sacred music. She could have been a teacher and had a, a wonderful lifestyle with a new car and a beautiful home. She could have had a wonderful life, but she did not desire that. Her heart cry was to be a missionary. Her heart cry was to lay her life down and follow Jesus. And Jesus led her straight to Hong Kong, to the darkest and most sinful place that she knew of. And you will find, if you are a Christian, that you really enjoy and are filled with happiness and joy when you can reach out and give to somebody in need. And when you can form relationships with those people and it's more than just giving a few dollars to someone on the side of the street. As we'll see in the story today, there is a real investment to not only be a disciple myself, but to disciple others. So what we shared yesterday, Jackie Pullinger had started a youth club in the walled city of Hong Kong, which was a kind of no man's land, neither England nor China 
would exercise any legal power. And so the walled city became a place filled with all sorts of crime, prostitution, pornographic film. And this is where Jackie was called to minister. So she started a youth club to keep the boys out of riots and also because she loved them and she wanted them to be able to just do things like play ping pong that boys and girls who lived a more normal, we would say, life had the opportunity to do. So she said, well, they should be able to go on picnics. Why not? Jesus loves them. And this is how she was able to minister and witness to them, and many of them were converted. However, one night, somebody broke into the youth club and destroyed much of the property. They broke the windows, and they smeared sewage over the walls and floor. And at this point, Pullinger said, Do I really want to keep doing this? I can just go back to England. I can have a nice orderly Bible study group where everyone knows what day of the week it is and they can show up on time. But she knew that the Holy Spirit was telling her to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, and so she spent the day cleaning up the club and reopened it at night. She writes that it was a young man named Ah Sur, at 18 already a seasoned jailbird, who told me later what had happened the night of the attack on the club. One of the boys had had some troubles, which he felt were all my fault. These dropout kids had such a problem with authority that whenever anything went wrong in their lives, they blamed the nearest establishment figure. He had come around and started yelling and throwing things at the youth club windows. This incited his friends to action, and soon they were all on the rampage. Most of them had no idea what they were angry about. It was just mob violence. Goko, the big brother of many of the gangsters, Goko had a report within hours about this mayhem on his patch and was so displeased that he summoned the offenders to appear before him. He ordered them to return anything they had taken and to go back to the youth club the next night and behave. Can't do that, one of them replied. We've broken up the place. She'll never welcome us back. Oh yes, she will, Goko had said, because Miss Poon is a Christian, and she'll forgive you no matter how many times you offend. She'll open the door and welcome you back. So they had come back and Goko had sent Winston to see that his orders were carried out. I felt very small when I heard what he had said. Obviously, he knew how Christians were supposed to behave, even though my inclination had been to do exactly the opposite. Now that I knew Big Brother was watching, I was much encouraged in the direction the club had taken. Something of Jesus had got through, unaided by social programs and church services. Most of the hangers-on had by now disappeared, as they discovered that I was speaking the truth when I said there were no more funds apart from what I was putting in myself. There was no social advantage in being a member of our club. In fact, quite the reverse. 
most other churches definitely disapproved of this disorganized youth center. Social workers and youth counselors who visited me asked what the program was. I found this rather difficult to explain in terms of a schedule. Well, I open the club door at night, and sometimes one person comes, sometimes fifty. I make friends with them and talk. Sometimes we sing or pray. Sometimes we go on an outing. I maybe sit all night with one who has no place to sleep, or share a bowl of rice with a hungry one. Finally, I hit on an impressive phase phrase. I'm doing unstructured youth work was my reply to the social workers, who nodded earnestly and decided that this was the latest sociological technique already pioneered in forward-looking countries. I had tried regular projects, but they were rarely successful, and I was frustrated and looking for helpers who would understand this. We had a football coach at one time, who rented a playing field and had weekly training sessions. All the boys were crazy about football, and over 40 signed up for the activity. 20 of them turned up for the first practice, the next week there were 10, the third week there were none at all. The coach was most discouraged and wanted to quit and teach at the YMCA, where the youngsters were really keen. I tried to make him understand what had happened. The walled city boys lived such strange lives that they usually had no idea what day of the week it was. They slept by day and got up in the evening, as most of the vice operations they were associated with happened at nighttime. Sometimes they stayed up for 72 hours at a time, or slept for two days. They stayed in gang pads, opium dens, or wherever they could find a floor or staircase. The idea of football was most attractive, but actually getting there was another matter. They did mean to go, but they had absolutely no self-discipline. The third week of the course, one of their brothers had got married, so they all went to the wedding feast. It never occurred to them to inform the instructor or me. Had the instructor come back the following week, he would have found perhaps a couple of lads and the next week four, and the week after that maybe a dozen. Once they had the idea that the instructor was really concerned about them and would turn up even in a typhoon for one boy, they would have given him their loyalty and their friendship. Eventually, he would have built up a team for life. Many people came to me and asked to help in the club. It sounded romantic and exciting to work in the walled city, but few stuck it out more than a few weeks. If they held classes or games that were not well supported, they lost heart and never returned. I needed to find Christian workers who loved the people they were working with more than the activity through which they were trying to reach them. Like the walled city boys, I now slept by day and got up at night, at least in theory, in fact, since I had language lessons, court appearances, prison visits, and other matters concerned with sorting out problems for them, it meant that I was also up by day. Every day, the only way I could get out of bed was by promising myself that I would come back and sleep later in the day. I will. I really will, I would mutter as I struggled into consciousness. But I never did. Instead, I learned how to catnap, 
sleeping on buses and ferries. One night, we went to the hills for a barbecue. It was the Autumn Moon Festival, and the boys had strung up paper lanterns all over the hillside. In the clear moonlight, I saw a large, rough-looking young tough sitting among us and stuffing himself with pork chops, beef steaks, and chicken wings. As I had brought all these myself and had reckoned on them being sufficient for our entire coach load, I was quite mad at him. But while I watched, the other boys gave him their rations and seemed mesmerized by his every word. Ah Ping whispered that this was his own Dailo, the leader of his particular gang, and of most of those present. He was actually the real brother of Gopo, and was the number two in the walled city. As more and more of his brothers had been attending our club, Saidi, curious and maybe a little jealous, had decided to come to this function himself. If he chose to, he had the power to run all the boys and the club itself, so there was a distinct possibility that this was a takeover bid. Would you mind coming for a talk, I asked him, and indicated a small patch of scrub just over the crest. He was amused at this request from a mere girl and made a great show of rising from his haunches and lumbering toward me amidst cat calls and whistles. But when we were out of earshot, he dropped the macho attitude and listened quite seriously when I told him that the whole reason for the club was that I wanted them to know the love of Jesus. His reply was an indictment and a confirmation. I know, he said. We've been watching you. Many missionaries come to Hong Kong to help us poor people. They put us in sociological boxes and analyze us. Then they take our pictures to shock the Westerners by our living conditions. Some men get famous because they've been here. But inside the walled city, we usually get rid of them within six months. He spoke maliciously. We find ways to discourage them until they have no heart to continue. Had you been a man, we would have had you beaten long ago. He added, We couldn't care less if you have big buildings or small ones. You can be offering free rice, free schools, judo classes, or needlework to us. It doesn't matter if you have a daily program or him singing once a week. These things don't touch us because the people who run them have nothing to do with us. What we want to know is if you are concerned with us. Now you've been here for four years, and we have decided that maybe you mean what you say. I did not sing in front of him, but there, on a hump in the Chinese mountains, my heart was bursting. What an amazing statement. You know who really cares for you? Do you have friends? Do you have a church? Do you have people who really know you and care about you? Alexandra asked one person, do you have friends at church? They've been going there two years? Um, I think it's more about four years. Four years. And this person answered, no, I don't have any friends who know me. We just nod to one another and speak pleasantly. 
and then go about whatever we're doing. That's so typical. Where do we really finally say, let's be disciples of Jesus Christ and let's lay our lives down for each other? I think of one person in particular that I tried for several years to break through the hard, cold shell, talking about it, offering friendship. This person had an isolated igloo they lived in. They would not allow anyone to come close. There was a religiosity. There was a statement of belief in Jesus. But their heart was frozen. And after those years of trying, this person finally left. Cold, hard, unconscious. Somewhere, we've got to lay all of this down. We've got to begin to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I care. And I'm going to be there. No, please. I know what it's like to have one person respond when I wanted 50. I know what it's like week after week to hold a prayer meeting. And even those who say they want to pray don't show. I know what it's like to have those who say, I can't come to your prayer meeting, Pastor. I'm too busy. My prayer meeting? I don't think it's my prayer meeting. It's a time to, to love each other and deal with Jesus. But we have set up our walls and we have formalized our worship and we have certain ways we relate with each other and in the end it's cold and no heart so I love this story because it's a great encouragement to each of us to open our eyes and look around us and see what do the people around us need both in the church outside of the church I hope that you know at least one poor person you've been helping, and if not, ask Jesus to find some. They're not hard to find. But I was thinking about this last night. I reached out to somebody I've known for some time who's been really stuck. He's from a low-income family. He is a Christian. And I, I just realized this man had been in church for years, and it was, there were very wealthy, middle-class, upper-middle-class people in that church. And I asked him last night, I said, do you have a resume? He's been talking for years about getting a new job. He's a grocery store cashier. I said, do you have a resume? He said, no, I don't have a resume. He'd never been taught how to write a resume. He went to not a very good high school where they didn't teach him. He has taken some college courses at Nova, but they haven't taught him how to write a resume. 
And I'm just saying, how is it that this young man has been in the church, has talked and been friends, come to multiple meetings a week, known people who certainly know how to write a resume, and yet it wasn't until last night that it occurred to any of us to even ask him. And so I said, well, get a draft and I'll help you. And I'll, look, I'll help you look for jobs and put in your applications. It's just that kind of simple, practical help of really loving each other that's what we need. That's, that's the love of Jesus through us for others. And that's the beauty of why we're sharing this story. I mean, you could say, Pastor, come on, why aren't you opening the scriptures and, and teaching us the scriptures? Well, because cold-hearted people like to learn the scriptures too. We don't want cold-hearted people. And so that's what I love about this story is there are probably many ways you can help the people around you if you would just start to think about it. You know, maybe you just need to go and help someone fill out a form at the county office. Yes. Maybe someone has been struggling to learn how to drive and you need to say, look, I'll, I'll spend 20 minutes with you on Monday night and Wednesday night and I'll help you learn how to drive. It's just that kind of simple investment. We all have something that we can give to others that they need. And we shouldn't just take for granted that everybody already knows and the only reason they're not doing it is because they're just lazy. That's just not true. It's this kind of American idea that's infected the church, but it's really not true. A lot of people just don't honestly know what to do. And you need to just do it with them. And ask them, do you know how to do that? And do you need help doing it? I'll go with you. I'll go to the government office with you. I'll go to take your driver's license with you, your test, your road exam. I'll do whatever you need to do. I'll go with you. And when we talk about the kingdom of God coming on the earth, it's this kind of love and this kind of relationship. Jesus doesn't like it. He isn't pleased that people don't have shoes to wear or clothes to wear, that they don't have something to wear to an interview. He's not happy that they don't have driver's licenses. He wants us to help each other and not just to turn the cold shoulder. And not be indifferent. Yes. Well, she continues, Now that the Rice Christians had departed from our club. I found that those who remained were the ones who wanted to be friends and who eventually would become interested in spiritual things because they could not understand why I would actually be there if I had not been sent by an overseas church. They began to consider seriously the possibility that Jesus was real. One day we were sitting on the benches in the club room when Ah King, known as the Walled City Joker and great friend of Ah Ping's, came. Poon sighed. We sat up for the whole night last evening discussing you, and we came to one of two conclusions. Either the British government has sent you here to spy, 
or what you say about Jesus must be true because there can't be any other explanation. Nobody's going to spend their life with us down here unless you have to or unless Jesus is real. He became a believer too. He proved to be a most hot-hearted, enthusiastic Christian. Boy, I like those terms. Yes. I want not hot-headed Christians. I want heart, hot-hearted Christians. Amen. I began to visit him and soon found out his fearful background. Ah Kung was one of six sons who lived with her father in the western district of Hong Kong Island. His mother had run away after the birth of the sixth boy and gone to live with a policeman. His father was a member of a very powerful triad society that controlled that area, but after his friend was murdered in a gang fight, he decided to move to a new environment and chose a room in the walled city. He worked as a gambling den collector. He did odd jobs in the den, including collecting bets and pawns, pawning the gambler's watches. As this was a night job, he never saw his son during the day, and they were not brought up at all. When they awoke, they ate their father's food, should there be any, and if not, they went to beg it from the neighbors in the street stalls. As they grew older, the brothers became confidence tricksters. None of them went to school, of course. They were all triad members. The eldest three were imprisoned at the ages of 13, 14, and 15 for selling drugs. Not only did they make money this way, but they all also each became addicted. Later, the fifth and sixth brothers were also arrested for drug-related crimes, and the sixth had received a sentence of six months hard labor by the time he was fourteen. This young man was the only brother who was never in prison because he became a Christian just in time. One night he rushed into the club room panting and said I had to come to his home quickly. I ran down the street after him, dodging in and out of the prostitutes around the gambling den where his father worked. I had to step with care. The entrance to the alley was very slimy. The gamblers used the alley to relieve themselves in the absence of toilets. It was 18 inches wide and led to a stone staircase that was crumbling and dripping with green slime. The atmosphere was evil. Up the stairs, the door was open that night. The one-room dwelling was not large enough for all six plus their father to sleep, but since two of three of them were usually in prison at any one time, there was no great problem. When I got there, I found the eldest brother injecting himself with heroin. On the floor there lay a man with stripes and bruises on every limb and a blood-soaked shirt and shorts. He'd been beaten up savagely. I've never been brave at the sight of blood, and it makes me feel physically sick, but here I was, faced with the job of cleaning him up and caring for him. My first reaction was to send him to the hospital. We can't take him, they said in unison. He's a gang member. He walked across someone else's territory, and they beat him up. 
If we take him to the hospital, he'll be asked questions by the police, and then they'll find out that he's a drug addict. I had no alternative. I had to help. So I took their bucket of water and some filthy old bandages, went out and borrowed a shopkeeper's... Mercurochrome. Mercurochrome. I haven't heard of that for a long time. And began to clean the man up. Unexpectedly, I did not feel sick or faint. I was calm and happy. Jesus had said that he came to bind up the wounded. And that's exactly what they'd asked me to do. As I washed away the sullen man's blood, I told him about this. I told him about Jesus' love and how he could know him too. He made no response, but I was sure he understood. He came back one day, two years later. After this incident, I became more involved with this young man's family. I visited those in prison, the brothers. I tried to help them find jobs on their release, find alternative homes for some of them. One night I was walking out of the city at about 2 a.m. when I overheard the second brother, Sasso, giving my telephone number to another addict. 833179, he was saying, as they ate their soup noodles at the makeshift table in the street. Remember that number next time you're arrested. It doesn't matter what time of day or night you call, Miss Poon will come. It doesn't matter whether you've done the crime you're arrested for or not. She'll come. The only thing you must do is to tell the truth. You see, she's a Christian. As I walked home, I knew that my labor in the Lord was not in vain. Here I was privileged enough to see the fruits of some of those labors. Some of the vilest criminals in Hong Kong now knew that Jesus' name was truth. As well as Aachen's brothers, most of the boys I knew were frequently arrested and sent to court. As I got to know them better, I sometimes believed their claims that they were innocent because I checked their alibis myself. Of course, most of them were criminals, but they were not always guilty of the crimes with which they were charged. It seemed to me quite wrong that they should either confess to crimes that they had not committed or deny crimes in which they were involved. I discovered that they regarded the whole business of arrests as a fatalistic game, and they felt that legal proceedings, carried out in a language that they could not understand, bore little relationship to the truth. Several times while I was walking with Ah Ping outside the walled city, he would say, Whew, I've walked to the end of the street and I didn't get arrested. It was not that he had done anything, only that he had seen a couple of detectives who recognized him. Both the policemen and Ah Ping knew that he was fair game. If they wanted, they could stop him, search him, and ask him a few questions. Or they could take him away and pin a crime on him. It happened frequently. Boys would sign confessions as they knew they could not afford legal representation and that a guilty plea would earn a lighter sentence than a not guilty plea. I began to plead with the boys to tell the truth and nothing but the truth in court. 
This led to spending many, many hours in courts and magistracies. I shared the criminal shame as I saw people pointing at me and saying, there's that simple Christian sitting with those crooks. I knew the boys had done wrong things and perhaps some of them were still involved in crime, but I was always willing to go and sit with them, guilty or not, as long as they spoke the truth. But the shame was awful and it helped me to understand what an amazing sacrifice Christ had made when he not only publicly associated with us sinners, but also took our wrongdoings as his own. One evening, I received a call from Mao Jai, a nickname meaning Little Cat. It was 7.45 p.m., and we had a room full of St. Stephen's girls and Walled City boys who had just been praying together in my flat. Johnny's just been arrested. Get to the police station quickly, Mao Jai said. How do you know, I asked, and where are you? Can't talk here. I tell you later, he said tersely. On the way to the police station, I thought about Johnny, who was one of the most repulsive-looking drug addicts I knew. He was small and desperately thin, more a skeleton than a man. If that one can be saved, anyone can, I had said when I first saw him. He was a carpenter and earned quite a good wage, but he used the entire lot to smoke heroin. He was a triad too, but useless to his gang. When I arrived at the station, I asked to see Johnny, but was told he was not there. He must be here. He was arrested 45 minutes ago, I said but the desk sergeant denied it. Why don't you go home and we'll telephone you if he appears, he suggested patronizingly. I'll stay until you produce him, I said, and prepared to settle down for the night. Two minutes later, they indeed produced him, but I was too late. He had already confessed to a crime. He was charged with being in possession of a screwdriver with intent to break into a building a mile outside the walled city. The time Johnny was alleged to have committed the crime was 8.15, but I knew this could not be true because Little Cat had phoned me half an hour before that. I went to look for him. It transpired that Johnny and Little Cat had been taking drugs together in one of the largest dens in the walled city when two detectives had come in and taken Johnny off. The detectives should not have been there. This was not their beat, but they knew well where the dens were, and the addicts made easy pickings. The evil of the situation was that certain police, far from intending to stop this ugly business, actually had an arrangement with the vice bosses that they would ignore the dens in return for tea money. The police made show raids but several times I heard den watchers getting the tip off from police who phoned to say that they were on their way. During the walled city's heyday of crime, there was a syndicate payment from the vice and drug dealers that amounted to $100,000 daily. Although uniformed police rarely went inside apart from raiding parties, I was told that several plainclothes detectives were actually running some of the illegal businesses in league with the triads. This made it extremely difficult 
to sort out the good guys from the bad guys, and I began to understand why the boys I knew were so muddled about right and wrong. Johnny's family lived in a squalid flat just outside the walled city. They were desperately poor, but they borrowed money and bailed him out. This was a mistake because Johnny used the remand period of several weeks to take even more heroin until he had used up all the family money and pawned most of their belongings. I visited him and tried to persuade him to plead not guilty, as I knew that he was innocent of this particular charge. Johnny was reluctant. I can't deny the confession I've signed, he said. The police said they'd arrest me for something else if I did, and I need to keep in with them. Addicts claimed that they were often given heroin at the police station in return for their confessions. But Johnny had to learn to stick to the truth. I told him all about Jesus and how he always spoke the truth, even though it cost him his life. Then we prayed together. Johnny agreed that it would be right to tell the truth, but he said that it was too dangerous for him at that stage. He explained it all patiently. If I do tell the truth in court, then that means I'm letting everyone know where the drug dens are. Worse still, I'm saying that the police themselves know where they are, but that they are not doing anything about them. Both my friends and the police will want to get me for saying so in court after that. I went on meeting with Johnny. When I say we prayed, it's not strictly true. I prayed and he listened. He thought I did not understand the danger he would be in when I continued to tell him that he should speak the truth. On the day of the trial, he had quite decided to go along with the police story and plead guilty, even though I had hired a solicitor to defend him. The solicitor cost me more than a month's living expenses, but I saw it as God's money, which I would use in his name. Just before Johnny went into the witness box, I showed him a Bible passage telling us not to be frightened when in court, for the Holy Spirit tells us what to say. Johnny told me afterward that when he stood up in court, he suddenly had an overwhelming conviction that he had to tell the truth, even though he did not want to at all. What might have been a simple case lasting a few moments became a major battle lasting more than a week. There were long cross-examinations of the police evidence by our solicitor, but eventually the magistrate accepted it as the correct version and found Johnny guilty. The emotional strain of the week overcame me when he pronounced the verdict, and I burst into tears in court. To see an English girl weeping for a Chinese criminal and drug addict was unusual. The prosecuting police inspector snapped his briefcase shut and came up to talk to me. He asked me why I was crying. He got arm, said the inspector kindly. In fact, he has 13 previous convictions. I shouldn't waste your sympathy on him. That's not the point, I replied. He hasn't done this one. Well, said the prose prosecutor, you know this is Hong Kong justice. Even if he hasn't done this one, he's done another crime. It's fair enough in the long run. 
That's not right, I insisted. Jesus's name is truth, and we are called to tell the truth here in court. By this time, the arresting detectives and their companions had gathered around. They knew that they knew that I knew they had been lying. They saw the tears streaming down my cheeks. They saw me as a fool, and they laughed. They laughed and they sneered as they left the court for a celebration meal. It was difficult not to feel bitter against them. Johnny was sent to prison, and from there he was sent to a drug rehab center. He was assigned a probation officer who summoned his mother, saying, Don't let that Christian interfere with your lives. You're not Christians. You've got idols. You're idol worshippers. The officer was very rude and uncooperative, but I continued to visit Johnny. The final verdict was yet to come. On appeal, the Chief Justice overruled Johnny's conviction, and he was technically free. However, Johnny went back to using drugs, and later he went back to prison. Out of prison again, he returned to drugs once more and continued this terrible cycle. But Johnny had never forgotten what had happened in court. I often used to go and visit him as he lay slumped on the chair that served as his bed. After about two years, he did finally believe in Jesus for himself. He became a Christian, went to a Christian drug rehabilitation center, and was transformed. After graduating from there, he became a male nurse in a tuberculosis sanitarium, working on the addicts ward. Johnny's mother was overjoyed when he became a Christian. Every time I passed the market, she threw eggs and sausages at me. Not literally, but she sold these at her market stall and was so grateful that she showered gifts upon me. Another lady at the noodle stall did the same thing. I could hardly pass without a large bowl being thrust at me. Eventually, I had to bypass her particular street for my jeans were getting too tight. This is to anticipate a few years, but out of that court case came other good results. It was the first case in which I had asked a solicitor to represent our boys, and many others followed. Each time, the police won the case. Don't think that Western woman can help you, they would scoff in the interrogation room. She has no power. But their actions belied their words. Several boys told me that they had been stopped by plainclothes men who asked them, Are you from that place? Are you from that woman's club? When they replied yes, the boys were not detained. The reason was that the police knew that if they charged one of our boys when he was innocent, they would be faced with a week's trial rather than a ten-minute hearing. Although they won the cases, this was too costly in time. It was one more sign to me that I was being watched, and that in this way, Jesus was preached. Another result came thirty months later. It was Christmas time, and I wanted very much to celebrate with a proper Christmas dinner for the boys, but we had no money. I thought they should have the best on Jesus' birthday, so having booked a restaurant, I prayed for funds. Suddenly, the phone rang. It was my solicitor's office. We've been checking our records, and we find we have to refund you $1,000, said a voice. No, you don't, I gasped. You don't owe me anything. 
We've been checking through Johnny Ho's case, and we owe you $1,000 in fees. Surely not, I said. That was a correct payment. In fact, I know you took the case cheap anyway. Our records show that there was an appeal, and that is paid by legal aid. Yes, I know that, I said, but the original hearing was not on legal aid. We had to pay for that. Will you please check your books very carefully? Because if you give me the money, I shall spend it. They checked their books, and they sent me the money. So on Johnny's trial money, we all had a wonderful Christmas dinner two and a half years later. God was watching over us, too. Well, we're out of time for today. I pray that as you listen to this story, your heart is challenged and warmed, and you determine in your heart that you will reach out and love somebody sacrificially. You will give. You will reach out and make a difference in someone's life. If you need that help in your life, you're welcome to go to Jesus, and he will meet with you. And he will carry you. You're also welcome to come and pray with us for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a phone number. 703-489-1785 That number again, 703-489-1785 been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. And join us tomorrow. We will have a recording of a sermon by Jackie Pullinger. God bless you. We know you'll enjoy that. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.